0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Pop Culture Podcast. Tyson Popplestone here. I am your host. Today on the show, we've got Dr. Joanna Howe, who is a professor of law and a mother of five. I'm not sure which one of those titles is more impressive, but I've got two kids, and that feels hectic. (laughs) I'm not 100% sure how she's doing all of this. Joanna finished a Bachelor of Economics and Law with first-class honors at the University of Sydney, and then undertook a Doctorate of Philosophy and Law at the University of Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar and now a Professor of Law at the University of Adelaide. She's one of uh, Australia's foremost legal scholars in the field of labour migration, the author and co-editor of three books and over 50 journal articles. To hear her story gets a little more controversial, a little more public, um, she starts to get a little bit more criticism. It was when South Australia, her home state here in Australia, when South Australian Parliament passed new laws to introduce abortion Up until birth that she felt compelled to devote her time and attention to this topic as a result obviously she's faced a lot of criticism it's a very heated emotionally politically socially it doesn't seem to matter which way we look at this topic the subject of abortion is a, a very controversial one I definitely didn't go into this with all the answers but a whole heap of questions just curious to find out about what it was that Drives her, motivates her, inspires her. Uh, i got a really good insight into what it is that gets her out of bed in the morning. She was a, a really inspiring chick. I, I love this conversation. Very switched on, very open, very honest. Um, really interesting one. Got to give you a heads up that some of the topics that we talk about as a, a result of the nature of the conversation, it gets pretty heavy. Um... So just be warned, I just want to give you a heads up that going into this one, there's going to be stuff that might be a little bit um, little bit hard to hear. So I just wanted you to go in with a, a little bit of insight or at least a little warning that some of the stuff gets a bit intense. But hey, it was a great conversation, really inspiring chick. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the show, Dr. Joanna Howe. So what are you
1: going to tell us, tough guys? My usual, zero, Nothing. <laughs>
0: I, um, I have to tell you, my my sister reached out to me about, it must have been six or eight weeks ago, and she goes, Tyce, can you please reach out to this chick and invite her on your podcast? She goes, I'm a little bit obsessed, uh, and I, I thought, oh, let, me, let me have a look here, and I, I started going down the rabbit hole, and oh my gosh, the, the Joanna Howe rabbit hole has been so much fun for so many reasons. <laughs> Um, I say that, first of all, from like a professional perspective, just to hear about what you've achieved in your life so far has been unbelievable. I mean, uh, the professor of law, five kids, both crazy achievements. Um, And then uh, hearing a little bit more about uh, flipping the script on abortion and and, and what you've got to say there, and then just reading through some of the comments on the posts that you post, you've got, obviously, you're, you're really big fans, people who love what you're about, and you've got people, which is no surprise to you, who are absolutely against it. And I I couldn't stop scrolling. Your Instagram has been so much fun. Your Facebook's been so much fun. But I say all that to say, it seems like you're juggling a few different things. You've got a few plates spinning. So I guess as a way of introduction, when people actually ask you about what it is that you do, how do you answer that at the moment?
1: <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I, um, I would describe myself as a mum of, mum, wife and mum. I think that's probably my most important role and I have to keep reminding myself of that, Tyson, because um, early on in my career when I first moved to Adelaide after doing my PhD at Oxford, I found myself kind of really overwhelmed by that juggle of having, I was. Pre- I had one child who was 18 months and I was pregnant with my second and I just started my first academic job and um, I, yeah, you know, I was really ambitious with my career and I always thought that if you're a young woman and you want to achieve professional success, the workplace should support you. And I wanted to kind of model that and also demand it of my workplace. But I, I won't pretend that it was easy. I, those early days of building an academic career and trying to really move the dial in my field, which is a temporary labour migration. So I look at vulnerability for migrant workers. My dad was a migrant, um, came here in the 1980s, and I've always been I guess really interested in the intersection of kind of working people's rights but also what happens when you're a migrant as well and so that was something I was really passionate about and wanted to move forward with and it was at a time when it was really in the public spotlight so there were lots of senate inquiries in Canberra but at the same time I was heavily pregnant had a, a new child like a, a, a baby 18 months and so didn't have really much support and um It was hard, but now looking back, because that's kind of 10 years ago. Now looking back, I describe myself as a mum of five and I kind of feel a bit expert at the whole mum thing of young kids. Like my older daughter's 12, so she's pushing the boundaries and I'm learning that new phase of development. But with the the three-year-old, he can't throw anything at me that I haven't seen before. So I really know how to handle him. Um, And then in my professional life, yes, I work at the University of Adelaide as a professor. Um, I'm very heavily involved in research. Uh, This year, the federal government appointed me to, to review the Australian Migration Program along with two other experts. So that was a dream come true to be able to do that. I kind of thought I'd get that opportunity when I was 60, if I ever got it at all. So to get it, um, you know, before I was 40 and to be able to have that impact was really exciting. But as you mentioned at the start last year, what's made me a very controversial public figure is I've decided to open my mouth on the issue of abortion and I am a going against the orthodoxy. And so as a result, uh, on social media and just publicly, I'm a controversial figure because of that.
0: Yeah. How have you managed the role of, uh, it's very interesting because every other part of your profession, every other uh, thing that you just mentioned is very respectable, very held in regard by a lot of people in society, but it is interesting once you're open your mouth on a subject whether I mean there's so many that we could choose from but in this particular instance I mean I, I don't have to look that far down the rabbit hole to see if you have an opinion on abortion which is not hey uh, do it and and do it like whenever you want whenever you please. All of a sudden, somehow it makes you a really controversial figure. And what what I've sort of learned, what I've been really curious to chat to you about is, well, everything that you've just mentioned, but beyond everything that you've just mentioned, it really, really funneling in on the, this subject of, of abortion. And, and I, come, I come to this conversation as a, as a real novice, as a person who's curious and as a person who's fascinated about how you found yourself in the position that you're in or with the mindset that you have uh, around the actual issue. And also how you've managed the criticism that comes with it. Because I, I, I had a good read through your website and I was going through it yesterday and, and just looking at some of the things that helped form your opinion, where your opinion came from, from being challenged by a friend of yours. I think you said it was back in uni days, just asking some, some fairly basic, well, so it seems fairly basic questions on the subject of, of um, uh, you know, a baby's rights or an unborn baby's rights. But where it gets really blurry, and and I was thinking about this, I was trying to chat to my wife about it last night, Uh, uh, the subject of abortion seems to step on so many different areas. Like, first of all, uh, it's it's heavily politicized, obviously. Uh, The other thing, it's a a really emotional conversation because people on both ends of the spectrum, whether you're pro-choice or pro-life, obviously, with, with such a huge conversation, there's so many emotions that get thrown around. And then there's a public pressure. Like, I, I think there'd be a lot of friends that I have who uh, would see the subject of abortion very similar to what you do in private. But when the subject comes up in a public sphere, it seems to be a conversation which scares a lot of people. And I understand how. But then reading a little bit more about the reason that you became vocal was, was something that was really, uh, really interesting to me. Some of the things that people think of when we speak of uh, abortion, it's, it's, I feel like it's for lack of a better word. It seems a little more gruesome uh, in a lot of instances, especially what we've allowed in recent years here in Australia than what people perceive it as. Like I, I think the conversation, and maybe you disagree. I think the conversation around um, abortion in the first few weeks um, is the thing that a lot of people in this public sphere are talking about. But what we're starting to see in Australia at the moment is is the complete opposite end of the spectrum. And so, There's quite a lot there to unpack, and I I say that less as a question and more as um, something to to riff off because I'd love to know or I'd love to uh, hear your thoughts or um, just hear you express why it is that you decided to become a little more vocal on the subject.
1: Yeah, I think that's so interesting. I might start at the end um, and then track back to the beginning. So the comment I get very frequently when I talk about Australia's wall-to-wall abortion up-to-birth laws is that's not true. It's not legal to abort a child after 22 weeks. And I, I get that all the time and I'm really surprised at the lack of knowledge about the issue. But I think you're right that when politicians debate this in Parliament or when we talk about it publicly, we talk about a woman's right to choose and we don't realise that there's actually, um, there's, there's 40 weeks of pregnancy. And so um, while a lot of Australians, in fact, an Ipsos poll that came out just last week said that, About 74% of Australians support a woman's right to choose um, in the first six weeks. But once you get to 20 weeks, only 31% of Australians support abortion. And after 22 weeks, a child is viable. So you could actually induce that child alive and give them care and protect their human rights. They're no longer dependent on the mother's body for survival. But what late-term abortion does is it injects um it induces a cardiac arrest in the child and so the child is dead and then delivered intact stillborn dead and my view is why can't we just deliver these children alive they have human rights at that point they're clearly a baby they're clearly able to survive without the mother's body and so with late term abortion you have to get them out anyway so I'm sorry this is kind of gruesome but you have to get them out anyway why do we kill them first in a process that does involve some pain for them at a gestation that they can feel pain so I feel very passionate about that and it was in 2021 that South Australia was debating abortion up to birth and that's the state that I'm from and I'd actually just come off a period of maternity leave with my fifth child and I was unaware that this was going on but a friend of mine who was dropping her son around for a play date said to me did you know that this is what's happening and what the way she actually said it Tyson was she said there's a church that has a billboard that says, write to your MPs to vote against abortion up to birth in SA. And she said that the council had made them remove that billboard. And that really got me going because I thought, well, that's a free speech issue. They should be allowed to politically campaign and have the freedom to be able to do that. And and so that really kind of got me angry. And I started looking at it. And when I looked at the legislation, I realised that it did allow abortion up to birth. And so I wrote an opinion piece for the editor of the advertiser. But when I pitched it to him, he actually said to me, the reason the billboard got bill pulled down is because it's not true. This law wouldn't allow abortion up to birth. And I said to him, if I can prove to you that it does, will you publish my piece? And he did. He said yes. So I showed him the piece in the legislation which allowed abortion right up until full term at the approval of two doctors and, and he, he published my opinion piece. And that was when I, I really got thrown into it because once you publish something like that, you know, the attacks come and you're really in the public domain. I was injecting myself into a political debate I then spoke about the issue on the steps of parliament i wrote briefing notes for the members of parliament and i watched the parliamentary debate and it was in watching the debate where you know the attorney general vicky chapman she was asked by david spears could your legislation allow a 35 week old baby that was healthy to be killed to be aborted and she got up and said no and i knew from my experience as a legal researcher that that answer actually wasn't correct because her laws were modeled on the victorian laws And I knew that in 2011, a 37-week-old physically healthy baby with a physically healthy mum had been killed through abortion through psychosocial reasons. So what they'd done with that 37-week-old child was kill her in utero and then the mother delivered her dead. And I just don't know, given that adoption waiting lists are so large in this country, why they wouldn't induce that child alive and then give the mother the mental health support that she needs and allow that child to be placed out for adoption you know I birthed the child at 37 weeks at Flinders so I know what that looks like and I knew that the debate that was happening in the parliament was incorrect and and I must admit Tyson so I I left that debate and I caught the train home and I cried the entire way home from Adelaide to Portnolunga because I just felt devastated I felt devastated at the quality of the debate I felt devastated that people didn't know the facts and I I could see the writing on the wall. I left before the vote, but I could see the writing on the wall that they were going to vote abortion up to birth. And they didn't, you know, and the biggest lie is that this is rare and that it only happened because the child is going to die. You know, that's, the, that's what's being said in the WA Parliament right now as this is being debated. And it's just not true. Nearly 5,000 children who are viable could survive outside the uterus have been killed in late-term abortion in Queensland and Victoria since 2010. of the abortions at that gestation are for a psychosocial reason. So they're on a healthy baby with a healthy mum. And so this is what really kind of um, has motivated me to speak up now. It was watching the SA debate that motivated me to to say, well, I care about vulnerability for working people and particularly for migrants. I have to speak up for for the vulnerable babies that could be born alive and aren't being born alive. Um, And I also feel like women are also being lied to about the issue. I don't feel like we have a frank conversation about the effects of abortion on women. And so there's so many gatekeepers that just prevent us Mm. from talking about it. So these, these are some of the motivations for me.
0: Yeah. It's so interesting because like when you're presented with the facts that you just shared about this late term abortion, um, especially the subject around the abortions that that aren't successful with babies actually being born alou- uh, alive now and being left to die here in Australia absolutely blows my mind. Like, I I read that and I, I couldn't quite believe it. I was like, no, no, surely she's misunderstood something here. And and you, you don't have to dig that far really to find out. No, okay, as a matter of fact, and it's not just something that's happened once. It's happened <laughs> many hundreds of times just in the last few years, from from what I understand, if I memorise that correctly. But. The, the, the thing that sort of stags me, or, or makes me um, confused, is as I said, when you share those facts, I don't know anyone, whether you're pro-choice or pro-life, who would say, "Okay, hey, this is a this is a good decision." It it's emotionally triggering because we understand at that point that this is a um, the early phases. I understand how the conversation can take place. This is a human life. Is this not? But at the stage, as you say, thirty-seven weeks, you gave birth to to your child at, at that time this is a fully fledged little human. I think people understand it when you put it like that. So what I'm confused about is when it comes to these conversations taking place amongst politicians and these these so-called debates, I, I find it hard to believe that a politician can switch off emotionally to the reality of what they're talking about. And I can only lean on this idea that they really don't understand the policies that they're that they're standing for, much like so much that happened during the COVID debates, I feel as though they're giving talking points uh, to their their politicians, which they're happy to riff on in order to, well, I'm sure it's for a variety of reasons, maintain status, maintain position, uh, whatever it else is that they're trying to do as they sort of push through in their political career. Do, do you feel like, is that a valid out for some of these politicians? Or do you genuinely believe they, they really understand what's going on? And despite that, they it's a treacherous path because obviously uh, uh, to stand against this in the public sphere, you're going to be put up as, oh, look at him not supporting women's rights. Look at her, doesn't care about women. What's going on here? When <laughs> the irony of it is, okay, well, there's there's two people now in this conversation. So is it the women's rights or is the baby's life? And what, what's your thoughts on so, that? What, what's I going on in these political that, conversations? Yes,
1: I, I hope that by speaking out about it and presenting people with the data of politicians that they would then be able to see the facts and vote in a way that is consistent with human rights but i've really been shocked so this has been a hard week for <laughs> me, and i've just been in wa and i've met with lots of mps there who are voting on this abortion up to birth bill that they've got before the parliament and the bill doesn't allow a legal right to care for a child that's born alive after a failed abortion and we know that in queensland and victoria that introduced a very similar law to the wa one a child is born alive without a legal right to care every week And there's coroner's reports. So a coroner's report into Jessica Dane showed that she was left on a metal kidney dish for 18 minutes without any palliative care or comfort care. She wasn't even held. She was alone in an empty room. They wrapped a blanket around her and that was it. There was another child, another coroner's report that I've got that I've released to the MPs that shows a child uh, dumped in a medical waste bin after, after a failed abortion. She was still alive and breathing. So, you know, and then just recently the Korean Mail reported on a child born alive and left to die in a Queensland hospital room in 2020 without any care. And, you know, it's really interesting because I presented all of these facts and I gave the reports. I actually emailed them all the primary sources so they could see it for themselves because in this era... If you disagree with someone, all you have to do is call it misinformation, and that just shuts them down. So I made it really clear that I'm a credible person appointed by the government to in my other area of research. So I sent them the primary sources so they could read it for themselves. But yet I've been watching the parliamentary debates now, you know, and just seeing politician after politician sidestep this issue. And then I, you know, I had a meeting with a, a, a female WAMP um, in the upper house, and 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 what she said to me is we were talking about this issue of babies one line, and she said, it's, let's be clear, it's a 22-week-old fetus and it will distress the parents if that child is too much distress on the families. And I said, actually, let's be clear, it's not a 22-week-old fetus. Fetus is a stage of development. This child has been born, so under our law, they're a, a person and they're also a baby. That would be the correct um, term for them. You know, And it's it's honestly like talking to a brick wall and it's really frustrating with politicians. And I, think it's, I actually think our politicians are more radical on these issues and ideologically driven than the Australian people. And I'm not sure if you know this. I, I don't think a lot of Australians knew it. I certainly didn't. But EMILY's List was formed in 1996. And basically its primary goal at that point was to, was to allow abortion up to birth for any reason paid for by the taxpayer, very pro-abortion organisation. They now broaden their agenda to care about a number of other things, but that was the primary goal that they had And then the thing about EMILY's List is they've got a lot of money. And so if you're a woman in the Labor Party, if you're not in EMILY's List, you're not getting any of the support and you're really on the outer. And I've spoken to women in the Labor Party who are not part of EMILY's List, who feel like they're bullied by EMILY's List and by people from that organisation. So the thing is most of our politicians, our female politicians, have been funded, supported by EMILY's List and have to sign on the dotted line that they are for abortion no matter what. And so that's why our parliaments are so radicalised. Like in a couple of years after, um, I think it was just one year after Emily's was formed, they got eight female MPs into parliament across the states. And, you know, now if you looked closely, you could see that all of our politicians in some way, even on the Liberal side, have now been influenced by the radicalisation of the political class. And so I quoted that Ipsos poll, 31% of Australians support abortion after 20 weeks. Up to birth, it would be so much less. It would be negligible. And yet in our country, the law is allowing abortion up to birth. And there are a lot of gatekeepers. So Dr Debbie Garrett wrote a book which tracked how, uh, it's called Alarmist Gatekeeping, and it tracks how anybody that's spoken out about abortion has been bullied, has been shamed, has been intimidated, and ultimately been shut down and they've been silenced and they've left the issue. And so I read that book before I made the decision in July last year to go out on social media to try and spark a national conversation and I knew this would happen to me and I've had powerful people call for my head. The president of the Australian Women's Lawyers Association said that I was an embarrassment to my university and they should sack me. The advertiser went after me with a, like a, a big story that news alert to all their subscribers, anti-abortion lecturer under fire, students distressed And when you read the article, there was one anonymous former student and the timeline didn't even add up. You know, it was apparently someone I'd taught who had felt so judged by me on this issue, even though I've never mentioned the issue of abortion in class because it's not relevant to my subject. And yet they were going after my job. They hoped, I think, that there would be people picketing, you know, at the law school trying to get me sacked. Instead, the university stood by me, which was incredible. They stood up for my academic freedom. And then 95% of the comments under the article were on my side. The student president of the Law Society wrote to the paper and said, how dare you, she's a fantastic lecturer. And, you know, the union, the student union passed a motion in support of my free speech. So I'm really determined to not let them shut me down. I think I have every right to be in this space. And, you know, that sort of just puts a fire in in my belly, actually, just how much they want to shut down the debate on the issue.
0: It's so funny. It's just—it's really interesting watching the way that people react to people who hold your particular view. Is like if you're a man, it's like how dare you speak on this subject? Like uh, this has got nothing to do you with to you. Mind. But if you're a woman,
1: <laughs> you have to mind your own uterus unless you agree with them, and then you're a man and you're allowed to speak.
0: <laughs> yeah. How beautiful is this? We're all coming around to the same side. Yeah. Uh, what What's the obsession with an uh, uh, organisation like Emily's List and the support that they're giving their politicians, what is the obsession with late-term abortion in particular or the right to late-term yeah. abortion? So
1: I think they think that any restriction on abortion is stigmatising to abortion. So now, you know, uh, you know, they, they now even force, the laws in our country even force doctors who don't want to be involved in this process, they have to refer to another doctor who will start that abortion. And in the WA law, which is the most recent bill, they talk about this, the um, refusing practitioner as if you're refusing healthcare when actually you've got your conscience is telling you that this is a procedure that kills a human being and you don't want to be involved in it. And I think Emily's List is so ideologically driven that abortion is always a good thing for women and, and so necessary for women's empowerment, that this is what they push. Like this is this is the thing that they are pushing um, and there's a lot of money in abortion, so you know, the, the reality is there's millions of dollars that are being, that we the taxpayer are giving to the abortion providers to to, to perform abortions. Late-term abortions are really expensive, so there's a lot of money in that. You know, Murray-Stokes, Planned Parenthood, th- these are billion-dollar companies. They say they're not for profit, but, you know, I, I look at, I think about, well, what are the salaries that they're on? What are the assets that they have? What are the perks are being involved in this? you know and and they give money to the political parties obviously to emily's list and you know mia friedman attacked me the other day so she came out she you know i actually posted about baby Xantha who'd been left alone in the Queensland hospital to die and her comment was not how tragic thank you for exposing this i'm going to use my platform to expose this too because i've got a bigger megaphone her comment was are you a genuine question are you a medical doctor you know, <laughs> it was like, you read my bio, like my, you can Google me, uh, my bio is very clamor, professor of law, done a PhD at Oxford. I'm not talking about this from a medical perspective. I'm talking about this from a human rights perspective. But what again, what she was doing was just a little bit of gatekeeping to try and kind of shame me and shut me down and sort of let me know that she's onto me until, you know, she's probably preparing a hit piece as we speak, Tyson, <laughs> I'm getting, you know, um, and so I just feel like we've sort of taken the humanity. Out of this debate and the media doesn't report it either so this senate inquiry that we've had into this issue of babies born alive they haven't reported it no one i mean sky has touched it but none of the mainstream media outlets have touched it and just yesterday unfortunately the senate committee even though they heard all this evidence and the lead senator Marielle smith she was she was following me on instagram after i gave my evidence um And I'm just devastated to have read the final report, which basically covers up the whole issue. It's just filled with quotes from abortion providers and abortion proponents saying, oh, babies aren't left to die. It's not a real issue. If they are born alive, they get palliative care. You know, why is this different to open heart surgery? We don't mandate a right to um, palliative care and open heart surgery. But in open heart surgery, you're not trying to kill the patient and they've unexpectedly been born alive. You know, in abortion, the child's been born alive unexpectedly. And so there does need to be a legal right to care because the very people who they're, who are there with them at the moments of birth when they're born are the people who tried to kill them. So you, you do actually need a legal right to care. And it's very different to, to other sort of um, medical procedures where we're trying to save the patient or ease their pain. So I was just devastated to see that because it just shows the extent of willful ignorance and blindness by the political class. Like if they can cover up the issue of babies born alive after failed abortion, something that I would say 99% of Australians would be aghast at that just shows you the power that the abortion lobby has over them. And it, it just shows you how difficult my task is to draw attention to this.
0: It's, um, it's, it's really, it's just, it's fascinating to me how many factors come into a decision that, uh, you know, politicians or, or just the general public are making, but with particular reference to politicians and, um, you know, examples like the organization, Emily's List that you mentioned, I didn't know about them. I didn't know about how much support they offered certain politicians to, or, or support, or how many guidelines they offered certain politicians to have around their beliefs on this. It oh, there's so many things. There's so many things. I'm just trying to formulate my thoughts a little bit. I, I, I'm mind blown at how many credible people are uh, quickly made to look ridiculous based on going against a mainstream story. So, can I give you? An there's example? there's so many facts.
1: Can I give you an example? So. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so just even this week, Tyson. So I've never ever made the argument against abortion on the basis of religion because I we live in a, in a secular state. There's a separation of church and state. I don't argue for justice for migrant workers on the basis of religion, and I wouldn't do that on the case of abortion. In my view, abortion kills a human being. Particularly late-term abortion kills gestationally viable babies who could be born alive. Um, it also leaves babies to die because of unintended consequences. You don't need religion to tell you that's wrong, and yet this week. I've had a number of trolls um set up fake accounts with me and they photoshopped me with like a bible and a cross and like religious garb i think in one i'm a female priest (laughs) Um, and i I just feel like that is that's just religious persecution and it's also just it's it's they're trying to go after me for something that i've never even said or done and that shows you the quality of the debate. They can't go after the substantive arguments. So they're going after me personally. But going after religion is like going after the colour of my skin or my gender. Like it's it's a protected attribute under discrimination law. And so that, that to me is just so concerning that that's how they win. Um, and, yeah.
0: <laughs> even, even the social factor of uh, the fact that they can go after you uh, being a Christian, do you know what I mean? Like uh, uh, the fact they can Photoshop a Bible and a cross mm-hmm. Speaks to what we're speaking about as well, because you you sweep your switch your position with a with a Muslim or a Hindu or uh, someone who Western cultures are said, like told no no you can't you can't question this despite the fact that you put a Muslim in your situation and many of their beliefs around this subject would be exactly the same. It's fascinating that um, that the idea of just getting stuck into a person for their beliefs based on, as you say, religion in this in this instance, Christianity, um, I'm assuming, like I, based on the fact you mentioned the yeah. Bible. <laughs> <laughs> like
1: I've, I've never talked about my religion with this issue. If you Google me, you can find out other details of my life and I am a person of faith, but it does not frame my issue, my, my opinion on this. And as you mentioned, in my 20s, I was pro-choice. I, I, I was... I was a person of faith then, but I was pro-choice because I had not looked into the issue. I believe most Australians are pro-choice by default and it was only through a friend challenging me. And he, he sort of said, and it was a guy, and I was really pissed off that he was challenging me. And I'm like, why do you talk about this? And I was an ambitious 20-year-old at Sydney Uni. And he said, what? why is it okay to kill a human being? I'm like, it's not a human being. He's like, well, what, if it's not a human being, what is it? And and he, it was just that those questions, you know, and I got really frustrated. I told him he should shut up and, you know, but later I looked into it and I, I realised, you know, I looked at abortion procedures, I looked at um, academic articles which actually had pictures of aborted fetuses and I read those articles, it, you know, that it convicted me that this was wrong. Um, but it's never been about religion and I think it's really disingenuous of the other side to try and dismiss legitimate arguments through religious persecution.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I looked at that article that you're talking about last night and your about me section. I think you had linked to, uh, you know, the fact that that was a really transformative article. And it, it's one that it was mind blowing to see, because I would say I've usually got like a relatively strong stomach for, for gore and just reading through that, you can describe something with your words, but as the old saying goes, like a picture, a picture literally paints a thousand words. And, and I saw that I couldn't even, I couldn't even get through the whole art. Obviously it was quite long, but I was just sort of scrolling through and I got to about the fifth or sixth picture, and I was like, oh, "Okay, like this is this is out of my depth." Like, it's almost like before we enter in, into this conversation, let's just clarify: Hey, what's going on? If if that's not a baby, if that's not a life, like, what what's the conversation? What are we talking about? What is and that? Because every good. part of that, that article yeah.
1: twelve weeks. Like that, the fetuses in that article that were aborted, where you could see the arms, the legs, the head—they were twelve weeks. And yet, you know, imagine if we were able to see this from twenty weeks on you know imagine if we were able to to really have a window into what's going on there in fact in america there were these um activists who convinced a garbage truck driver to let them see what was in the back of the truck and he was driving away from an abortion clinic i don't know how they managed to persuade him but they did i think they said do you know what you're carrying back there and they got him into a conversation so then he showed them and then there was like bags and bags of body parts of babies 20 weeks old and they were pieced together and they did a press conference and they showed this to the American people, you know. But, again, the media didn't cover it. So you've got, like, you've got Fox covering it, you've got it on social media, but it's really concerning that there's just vested interests who don't want people to see the truth.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I know one of the more common arguments that's brought up around this debate is like a woman should have the right to abort a child. Like what if she's raped? What if she's a victim of, you know, whatever. And obviously, um, uh, like hopefully it continues. They're, they're very, very um, small cases in terms of numbers, thank God. But still the individuals that are in a situation like that, it's a, it seems like a very different yeah. conversation. Yeah and I can't imagine like the emotional trauma that comes out of an experience like that and to literally be carrying a kid that you, you didn't want it uh, was, uh, was no part of your plan. When it comes to more emotional debates like that, like it's a, a, a really triggering example, which though um, rare have, have happened. Like from your perspective, is there ever a, a situation where early on, like a woman should be given the okay to abort a child, um, especially in a situation like this? Or is it uh, more an education process? Like, okay, obviously you've gone through a horrific experience. Um, you know, you're carrying this child now. There's all these options that you can uh, go through to, to save this kid, uh, deal with the, the trauma, the grief, whatever it else it is that you're going through. How do you how do you have that conversation? Because that, from my perspective, seems to be the most challenging argument that I've I've heard. Yeah,
1: and I think it's that's the really tricky. That's a really tricky one because in other every other circumstance, a woman is consented to sex. And an an outcome, an expected outcome of sex, even when contraception is used, is that you might fall pregnant. Um, And it's not just the woman, it's the man that should bear responsibility. In fact, in America, there's data to show that 86% of women who are born do not have a male supporting them, their partner is not supporting them or the father of the child. So it shows you the role of men in these circumstances. Um, I think the issue of rape is, is really hard because obviously that's something that should never have happened and there should be the full force of the law against the person that was responsible for assaulting the woman. The the difficulty here is every abortion kills a human being and the child in that circumstance is an innocent party to all of this. And right from the moment of fertilisation, you have a distinct, unrepeatable, unique human being. The further the pregnancy goes on, the more developed they are. And so this is a really difficult situation, but in my view and where I've landed, and it took me a while to get here Tyson. so I don't expect people to be on the same page with me about this, but I am against abortion because it kills a human being, and so that means even in the circumstances of rape. But what I would say to people is I'm open to modifications. So, you know, I think at this point we allow abortion up to birth for any reason, and so if and that, and that amounts to eighty-eight thousand children dying every year in Australia. So that's one in five pregnancies, one in five children are killed for abortion in utero. And so if we got re- if we didn't allow abortion and we supported women in unplanned and crisis pregnancies properly, but we created an exception for rape or incest, that would still save eighty-seven thousand children. And so it's a bit of a litmus test because you you know you have all these politicians standing up in parliament sharing about women who are victims of rape and that's why we need abortion. But what I'd say to them is if that's your reason, are you okay with making abortion inaccessible, illegal, in every case other than rape and incest? And invariably they don't answer affirmatively to that because they've got an ideological agenda. But, you know, I think this is a really difficult issue and I think I've given you the answer that I've come to, which is we need to support women Better than what we do, um, and that women who are victims of rape—that's a really, that's a really, really difficult one. Um, you know, and I, I have friends and women I've interviewed who have been victims of rape um, and been in that circumstance, and it, it's just really difficult.
0: Yeah, yeah. We look at one side of the argument often—the uh, healthcare of the woman. Is at the forefront of people's mind. Like you can see how a politician or or any person says, no, hey, look at this woman, look what she's going through. This is her life. She's made a mistake. She doesn't want this kid. Um, like for her health and well-being, she has to go through this procedure, which might be difficult for her, but for her long-term health is essential. And yet the flip side of that coin is, you know, like a lot of other issues that we debate, we, we don't talk about 18 months down the track about the long-term health of that woman. Like, sure. A lot of women, I imagine, and I'm I'm purely speculating here. You would know far more than me. Would get 18 months down the track and be like, oh, thank God I did that." You know, I can pursue my career without all the distraction of whatever else I was going to have to do in mum life. But the flip side of that, and I've I've heard you and um, some of the one of the girls that you you work with, I've forgotten her name. Sorry. Um, speak about that. The the flip side of that is a lot of women actually get to that point and struggle emotionally, mentally, with the decision that they've made. Um, can you talk to that a, a little bit because that was something that I'd never really considered. Yes,
1: there's a lot of data about post-abortion grief, about the fact that women um, experience suicidal ideation, um, depression, anxiety, um, lethargy from this decision. there is there's an overwhelming amount of data actually about psychological effects on women from abortion. So this is not something that is just it's not just it's it's sold as a quick fix. But it's really, really not. Like, it, you know, the, both the empirical and anecdotal data suggests this. I've had so many women reach out to me to say I wish I was told about this. And so, for example, there's a young woman that I'm close to, a good friend of mine, and she had an abortion um, in her teens. And they never. The doctor didn't, the doctor just assumed she would have an abortion. Um, because she was one year out of high school, never gave her any information on pregnancy health resources that could support her or on the mental health effects. You know, like there's just no information given to women about this. They're told that this, in fact, SA Health website just says, yeah, it's it, it, that, that's a myth, the, the post-abortion grief issue. So, you know, it's really concerning that women are lied to about it because it definitely, the data shows categorically that there are effects on women. Um and it's, it's it's really difficult. My view is that we need to give bigger socioeconomic supports to women. So, the, again, the research shows that most women choose abortion because they're victims of violence and because of difficult socioeconomic circumstances. But if a woman's in a violent relationship and you just give her an abortion, that actually doesn't help her get out of that violent relationship. So we need proper exit strategies for women. You know, um, there's also evidence to show that it's like, Jobs insecurity or it's i don't have a house and i don't have a secure house and i don't have supports and it's i feel like if we address those root causes that would be way more pro-woman than just funneling them into an abortion that's supposedly health care but makes them complicit in killing their child which is something that for a lot of women they regret
0: Mm. It's unbelievable that the university stood by you through this. If there was one organisation that I thought would drop you first, it would be the university. I mean, University of South Australia that's got you back? University
1: of Adelaide. So really interesting. I'll tell you this story, Tyson. So the day before the article dropped, I actually – was um I'd applied for promotion to professor and I assumed that because I'd come out on abortion I was that was never gonna happen like that was the end of my career it's career suicide to go against the orthodoxy particularly in the university sector where you know abortion is just seen as it's kind of like a what is it it's like a a badge of honor it's something that you know we really care people care about anyway so I went in for this interview um and you know there's the vice-chancellor very senior people on it and was interviewed, did the interview really well. But then the very next morning I get this email from the journalist saying, um, she doesn't say I'm going to write a hit piece, but by the questions I can tell it's a hit piece. And so I call my boss and I say, look, this is happening. And she said, don't worry, you know, um, I'll get onto it. And so she spoke to the higher ups and the very people that had been on my interview panel were the people writing the statement for the university. And in the end where they landed was in support of my academic freedom and freedom of speech. And so that was incredible that they did such a strong statement. But I still at that point thought, surely, surely I'm not going to get promoted now. And um, amazingly, two months later, I did get promoted by this university. And people have said to me, how have you survived? Because we do live in this cancel culture, don't you? Where if you you put one foot out of line, you're you're out, one toe out of line. And so I think it's amazing. But I think what's really, you know, I actually did my thesis at Oxford on unfair dismissal. So I know you can't get rid of me lightly, right? <laughs> <I'm working laughs> I've written the book on unfair dismissal, actually, like literally. Um, and so I, I know what my rights are, and I'm, I am speaking out factually and informatively on the issue of abortion. And yes, people want to shut me down, but you'll have to find a very good way to do that because I'm going to keep speaking.
0: Yeah, it's amazing just how much range there is in universities' response to so many different issues. And it's, it's interesting how many different things cross over here. Like you've you've mentioned misinformation a couple of times and fact-checking. Uh, We've mentioned the political side, the social side. I've been following, not super closely, but from time to time, just stop by and see what Jordan Peterson's up to at the moment because I think he's going through uh, like not similar in terms of uh, topic but similar in terms of trying to navigate a career and a title with I think it was a college or a university that he was a part of and he's been told that, um, uh, from what you might know more about this than I do, uh, in order to maintain his registration, he has to go through uh, essentially social media training, like professional training, <laughs> to make sure that the way he uses it is in line with you know what he's supposed to be saying. It's very 1984. Yeah, I, I heard it's very that. Interesting. I heard
1: that he has to go through re-education. But I'd love to see anyone who tries to re-educate him because he's he's an academic. He's a professor. He's going to be um, he's going to be able to speak you know facts and truth into whatever kind of re-education program he's a part of it, there is a cost I, you know I don't follow him closely but I do know that he he put his academic career on the line for an issue that he cared about he built a following so big that I think in some ways in some ways he's untouchable you can't shut his voice down but they'll do what they can and I know that he's lost professional opportunities because of it I think he had a, a visiting fellowship at Cambridge taken away from him because of his views and I, I guess I know that that's the sort of thing that will happen to me because of the, the, the stance that I'm taking. Like last year, I got a highly prestigious Australian Research Council grant to look at the issue of undocumented migrants on farms. But I know that, you know, this is academia is a peer review process. So when you put in for a grant or write an article, it's your peers that assess you. It's anonymous and blind, but they know who you are, um, especially for grant applications. And so... I just know that this will have this will have consequences for me, but I also feel like our laws are just so extreme in Australia that I have to speak out about it, and irrespective of the personal cost. It does concern me there's a misinformation bill before the parliament at the moment, um, and it really concerns me that that bill might pass and it would shut down voices like mine on social media because there'd be these so-called independent fact-checkers, but they have an ideological opinion, and so these these ideologically driven fact-checkers will be able to shut down voices like mine because I have a different view on an issue. And so that, that's a concern.
0: Yeah, we've seen through RMIT here in Victoria how effective their independent fact-checking is. Like I think at the moment they've just been caught for – well, I, I heard I, – I don't know who I was listening to recently, but apparently so many of the independent fact-checkers are, uh, are being funded to make sure that they find the facts which are in line with whatever political beliefs yeah. those funding them – uh, it was, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine the other day and we were talking about, um, I, I had Dr. Peter McCullough on here. I don't know if you know him. He's a cardiologist from the USA who, who's faced a lot of criticism because he's been quite vocal about the, um, uh, around the topic of vaccine mandates and around some of the health impacts of especially young men after having these vaccine mandates um, sort of imposed on them. And like one of the things was a, a big rise in myocarditis and deaths in young athletes across Europe. Um, you know, tenfold the numbers that what we had seen pre-vaccine rollout, and I just I had a, I mean that's a whole conversation. I've just sort of breezed past <laughs> that, but um, <laughs> but it was a really like really really informative conversation. He seems like a really smart guy. Um, he seems to point to data from every, from my standpoint. I left that going man. That was that was kind of very eye opening but a friend of mine got in touch and was like, oh, like, don't you know that this guy, like a lot of what he says is fake. Even that study about the tenfold increase in myocarditis and cardiac arrest in young athletes in Europe is made up because look at this fact checker. And I thought, isn't it, isn't it amazing? Like we've almost given title of God and all authority to these fact checkers that we don't know. We know are heavily influenced by the money that's coming into them through (laughs) whoever wants the funding to take place. The way we
1: always did this was we just debated and then the loonies, like the conspiracy theorist loonies, um, they were found out through that process of free debate but where we've moved to is this heavy reliance on fact checkers to be the arbiters of truth. But They're just fallible human beings with their own ideology. No one is objective on an issue. We're all subjective. We all come to issues with an opinion and a perspective Um, And I have a personal experience with RMIT Fact Check. In 2019, I wrote an opinion piece when New South Wales was debating abortion up to birth. And in it, a colleague and I from the university, we wrote that late-term abortions in Victoria had increased by 39% when they legalised abortion up to birth. And that was getting a lot of traction. MPs were quoting it in the parliament. I was invited on to the APC Religion and Ethics Report. And, you know, the, the tide was sort of turning. And so I guess the knives were out for me and my colleague. And RMIT Fact Check with abc wrote this hit piece essentially um and they said that that, that wasn't true they hadn't increased by 39 the statistic was actually true like it was if you added up the numbers and did the average increase you that was a correct statistic um but they branded us with the harshest ranking of um completely wrong and it was to discredit us and um the reason it was ideologically driven, like the end of that fact check, they literally quote eight abortion providers, like a survey with abortion providers um, about why abortion access needs to be increased. It it was such a hit piece, but, you know, and actually to be honest, Tyson, it has followed me. So they were trying to discredit me as a voice in this space. And when I did that opinion piece for the advertiser, I told you at the start, I wrote that opinion piece about the SA debate. Anyway, he, he published that and I think he must've just got so much hate mail from the Abortion lobby He emailed me and he said, "Do you still stand by your statement that abortions have increased by thirty nine percent in Victoria?" And I said, "I emailed him back and I said I do." And I I sent him the response piece that my colleague and I placed on a website that really no one reads. The ABC refused to publish our response, and and that's the thing. They have such a big megaphone. So when they get to define the facts and the truth, they get to eliminate all our voices because they they can speak so loudly to suit to so many people, and so. You know, I did feel actually really vindicated when this week um, RMIT ABC fact check got got removed from Facebook as their checker, you know, but I, I just don't think we should have fact checkers. I think we should leave this to the way we've always done this
0: yeah like a good debate good conversation you're right it exposes the loonies pretty quickly and if you don't like it I mean or if you if you think there's something wrong with what you're saying come and have a conversation with me and we'll talk about it and find our way exactly. in the middle oh, let's find some middle ground rather than just trying to make me look like a loony. how, how have you navigated uh, I mean there's so many things that we could talk about perhaps we have to do another podcast <laughs> at some stage but um how have you navigated this the personal criticism because I know like you've um you're very clear with the way you speak you come across like obviously you've got like a really confident presence rightly so like you've you've <laughs> achieved so much in your back yourself um and and, and what you've learned but i know that uh, emotionally even sometimes when we uh, seem tough seem like we've got it all together you come home to your husband or your family and i know this is what i do this is my tactic and i go oh my gosh babe like look what these people are saying um how have you how have you sort of navigated that space of your life because it's still relatively new in in context of you know how long you've been operating 12, for
1: 13 months really speaking out boldly on this issue every mm-hmm. day on social media um i I knew this would be hard for me. I think, like, I've kind of always been someone that's been in the. Um, I wasn't in like the cool group at school, but I've always been in like I've always been respected. So at school, I was ducks and school captain, and then at university, I was you know one of those people that was very involved in university politics and university societies. And I'm, I just you don't get a Rhodes Scholarship unless you're someone that can you know navigate social terrain well. But I've always felt like I have a bit of the Bob Hawke people please pleaser complex in that. I like to be liked. I think we all do. That's just natural in human Mm -hmm. nature. And so I knew this would be really tough for me going out on social media and what would happen. But then I also thought if like a woman of my stature, like someone who's at the top of her academic career who has a Rhodes Scholarship can't speak up on an issue like this, then who can? And I kind of knew that I just had to. I knew there would be attack after attack after attack. And that I would, and, and and that I would have to endure that. But I sort of felt like I'm doing this for other young women, in particular, who want to speak about this and who just feel like they can't, you know. And I didn't know what the following would be, but you know, already on Facebook, you know, I'm at twenty thousand on Insta, at twelve thousand. I feel like people want to hear this message, and ninety percent of my following is women, eighty percent um, are Australian, you know. So I know that there's a very strong local female based following who are interested in what I'm saying. And I think what my, my approach has been is if somebody attacks me, I am going to call them out. And that in some way has given me agency. So that has helped a lot. But Tyson, I won't pretend that like it, it's not easy. I, I um, after being in WA this week, talking to politicians, I got on the plane and I called my husband and he, and I was really teary because I just felt like I assumed that if I presented the data and facts, they would change, they would hear but they just were so ideologically driven that they didn't, and that was devastating to me. And I felt really, that that felt harder than when people go after me personally. Just to know that I'm doing all of this, and I still can't get through to them, and so I was crying about that. Um, and when I came home, he would bought me flowers and I had written a card. And we've oh, been married yeah. over 13 years, so that doesn't happen very <laughs> regularly right anymore. You know, and I I was really touched. I even read the card. I was like. This is just like the old days when we're dating, like all text across both pages of the card. But it just, he said in the card, um, you know, that what I was doing in the long term would would be picked up and that it, it would prevail and that he was so proud of me. And just that meant something to me. And for my younger daughter, who's 12, and even my eight-year-old daughter, being able to model to them that I'm not afraid and that even if I am afraid, I'm going to speak courageously, I think is really powerful, um, you know, and so I... I take heart from knowing that I'm doing my research, and I'm and I'm and I'm trying to do it in a loving way. Like I never, I would never judge a woman that's had an abortion. I am friends with women who've had abortion. I don't, I don't mind if someone has a different opinion than me. A lot of my colleagues do, and I'm good friends with them. So I'm trying to approach the issue in a way that um, enables me to build bridges. Um, and and I, th- I I am in it for the long haul. Like I don't plan to stop doing this. I plan to keep doing this. Um, because I I think it's important.
0: Yeah it's an amazing skill to have just that ability to maintain a friendship with people who have something that your uh, emotional opinions and sort of emotional stances vary so much from I found that out through the COVID lockdown there were so many people I was like oh I guess we're not friends anymore and then we came out of lockdown I was like oh you're so lovely like I was looking at you through the lens of this one issue and my wife's always saying to me she's like babe hey just remember they're not this one thing and so I feel like that's been a a massive wake-up call to me lately as well and something that yeah I definitely need to focus on becoming more like you in (laughs) because there's so many issues that can be solved over a friendly conversation or at least a middle ground uh, to be to be met in when well, you can, um, you know, put the emotion aside and just yes, have the well chat. Yes,
1: the advertiser article came out, so I think what they were hoping is that they would do this story and then there'd be an avalanche of criticism against me. Um, I spoke to my boss and said, has anybody complained about me? And, you know, she'd received no student complaints at all, but one staff member had apparently said that, I was um, bringing the university into disrepute and our reputation and you know I just thought well I'm gonna I always had a pretty good idea who that was so she actually is friends with me and I went to her and I just said I know you said this to the boss why don't you just say it to my face and let's have it out and and we just had a chat and we agreed that we'd probably get drunk together and um you know and and made it that way but the other day you know we kids got together and we had a coffee um and a play date and I just I feel like that's what we should be doing like we just have to be not, we, we just, we're so polarised, aren't we, on everything. I think, I'm, you know, vaccines, abortion, um, you know, everything, everything we are polarised on and, and, and we have to get beyond that. And so it's great that you've got this podcast. I had no idea what your view is on this issue or on anything <laughs> when you emailed me, but I was just like, well, let's have a conversation because that's what we should do.
0: Yeah yeah it's awesome that's no, so good just to, uh, I'm like you I love the idea and I'm still learning just to try and have that conversation be educated I mean I knew I was coming here to get an education today come with questions and I uh I know anyone my sister recommends is someone I'm going to be interested in hearing from and I mean I've already become a fan I've started looking through Instagram I'm a subscriber I, uh, or a what do you say a follower oh my gosh like 36 that's what happened you start calling yourself a subscriber but anyway it's um, it's great to have you on here I'm so glad you made the time so um hey I'd, I'd love to do it again I'm cheering for you a big fan of, of what you're And the courage it it takes to do it. So, thank thanks so much for stopping by. And
1: lovely to be here. Let's chat again.
0: We'll do. See you later, everybody.